Take a moment tonight to look out your kitchen window. Are the streetlights turned on? Would you believe me if I said that streetlights are actually a symbol of how our country treats neighborhoods differently based on whether the majority of people who live there are black or white? We are constantly and fundamentally surrounded by racism and how our systems and public institutions are structured and how they operate, so much so that it can actually be easy not to see it. We must look through a structural lens at our political, economic, social, and cultural history to fully understand the meaning of racism in America and how to address it in our communities. It can be tough to have an honest conversation both with others and with ourselves on race and racism. That's because we've traditionally understood racist as being a label assigned to people. He or she is racist, but I'm not racist. When really, racism isn't just about how people think and feel. It's baked into the policies, the institutions, the power structures, the culture we interact with every day of our lives. It's in the water, so to speak. By taking a hard look at ourselves, our organizations, and our actions, we can break it down. If we're not intentional and transparent about confronting racial inequity, the decisions we make can reinforce institutional racism. If we want to be effective at this work of neighborhood revitalization, we need to get outside of ourselves, no matter how uncomfortable it might be, and see the whole landscape, just to see how the system affects those who don't look like us and who don't share our life experiences, to see why the streetlights outside your window are either on or not. Welcome to This Is Community, a podcast series by purpose-built communities about breaking the cycle of poverty and creating vibrant communities where everyone has the opportunity to thrive. I'm Alexandra Wiggins, a community development advisor with purpose-built communities. In this episode, we hear from Glenn Harris about how we move towards racial equity from a talk he gave in 2015 at the Purpose-Built Communities Annual Conference in Fort Worth, Texas. Glenn is the president of Race Forward, a nonprofit that works towards racial equity through systemic analysis and community outreach. He is also the publisher of Color Lines, a daily news site featuring investigative reporting and news analysis from the perspective of communities of color. Glenn has over 25 years of experience working on issues of race and social justice, working with community groups, foundations, and government agencies, all dedicated to building a more just and democratic society. He does use a PowerPoint presentation during his session. You can find that and more on our website, purposebuiltcommunities.org slash podcast. So here now is Glenn Harris. I'm excited to be here. Uh, looking forward to having, a, I hope, a bit of an interactive conversation with you all um, about um, a very serious issue. Um, uh, one that I think is critical to um, not only the work that you all are doing, but critical to the success for us as a nation, which is race. And in many ways, it's deeply connected to the work that you all do on a regular basis, which is how do we get to the communities that we all want to have? Uh, and in many ways, it's just that simple. So um, my task in the next 45 minutes to an hour is to talk to you a little bit about the complexity of race uh, in its many forms and 
to think about really the simplicity of what it means for us to be taking action to get to different outcomes. So let me um, take a minute and uh, start out by talking a little bit about what racial inequity looks like in the United States. Um, race is a difficult conversation, as we all know. Um, and one of the things we think is absolutely central in the work that we do is actually bringing that conversation in and normalizing it. Um, and part of normalizing it is actually naming what the problem is. And so if we think about racial inequity in the United States, it turns out that you can think of any key social uh, economic indicator in the United States and race is a central factor or the central factor in outcome in 2015, right? Um, doesn't matter, you pick it, education, jobs, housing, criminal justice, you pick it. And the truth is, race is still the single largest determinant in outcome. Many folks will say, well, what about class? Turns out that race is the largest determinant for class in the United States. Um, the other piece that I think is important to mention is that while we know these disparities are huge across all of these indicators, they track the same nationally. So it doesn't matter, a lot of my work is, uh, was out of uh, the Northwest, out of Seattle in particular. It doesn't matter if we're talking about Seattle, or we're talking about Fort Worth, or we're talking about New York, or we're talking about Alabama. The reality is that those disparities look largely the same. And we're gonna talk about today why. The other reality is, is that we are rapidly moving in this moment to a majority-minority country. So not only do we have these profound disparities, but we also are going to end up within a country very shortly, by 2040, in which the majority of us are deeply affected by those disparities. So what does that look like? We've seen race play in this last year in a whole bunch of different ways, right? It's been front and center in national media. So at its most profound and devastating in the last few months, what we've actually seen is, um, well, the, the Charleston massacre. And while that is profound when we think about the nature of how race plays in the US, the truth is, is that people of color are dying in the United States every day, but mostly in a slow and silent way. This is for King County in Washington, uh, where Seattle is. Depending on your zip code, there's a 10-year difference in life expectancy. One of the most profound things that came out of the Ferguson study, though, is that in Ferguson, depending on your zip code, the life expectancy difference is 30 years, right? 30 years. So we know, again, doesn't matter what we're talking about in terms of success in life, race is central. I want to hold that for a second, and I want to talk a little bit. I'm just going to share a little bit about me. In the last few months, for some reason, um, I feel like whenever I'm on stage, I have to share this, which is I identify as black. Um, Rachel Dolezal has made us light-skinned black folks very complicated. <laughs> yes. 
right? In, in the last year. Um, but I identify as black because, in fact, I'm black, just so y'all know. So this, this, is, my, uh, this is my parents. Um, the picture on the, on the left is uh, about a year and a half into my parents' marriage. Uh, they met in the 1950s. Picture on the right is about four years ago. My father passed away uh, just this summer, uh, just a couple months ago. And um, he's, I shared that. He's part of the reason that I, I do this work. Um, that large-headed child in the middle <laughs> is my older brother. And uh, he's, uh, well, all I can say is just imagine that coming at you for you know, 18 years, that face. <laughs> Uh, but I adore him. Um, but my parents met. Uh, my father's actually from Tuskegee, Alabama, uh, born and raised. Uh, and he's a, a sort of old-fashioned race man. Went to Tuskegee University, joined the military and Air Force, left uh, the South at 22, and never came back. Um, very purposely never came back, never, never returned to the South. I met my mom while uh, he was stationed in uh, Scotland. My mom's actually born and raised uh, in Edinburgh. Um, and so my dad sort of, you know, really clear about race and identity. Um, and my mom came from sort of a long line of labor activists. Um, and so I always say I came by this work fairly honestly, right? Um, uh, and so. I had a pretty good understanding of race, but I don't think I really sort of understood the depth of it until I was about 15 years old. Um, how many folks here are, are familiar with the Tuskegee syphilis experiments? Many folks. So Tuskegee syphilis experiments went on for 50 years. Uh, it was an experiment uh, conducted by the federal government to look at the long-term effects of syphilis. Um, on a group of black men in, in Tuskegee. Uh, they told them that they were treating them, and in fact, they were giving them placebos to watch what happens um, when somebody dies a slow, horrific death from syphilis. Uh, so my great uncle James was part of the Tuskegee syphilis experiments. And when I was about 15, we got a check from the federal government and a letter, an apology, like our bad, right? <laughs> Um, and because it was a small amount of money in the first place and they had split it up, check was like for $34 and something cents. And so, you know, like I said, I had an understanding of, of what race was, but this I couldn't quite hold. I didn't understand it. I was like, how is this possible? Right? I mean, let's get this straight. It's a federal experiment, but it included the state of Alabama the county of Macon, and ultimately even Tuskegee Institute itself. So literally, there were thousands of people over a 50-year period of time, and no one could find it in themselves to just simply say, this is wrong. It's like, how is that possible? So um, holding that for a second, I'm going to ask you to do something with me. I uh, promise we will come back to it. I want to talk to you about math. Will you do me a favor and pick a number between 1 and 10? Don't tell anybody. Got your number? Multiply that number times 9 and take your time. 
I, I got this wrong the first time. It turns out it's been a while since I looked at my multiplication tables. So take your time. You got your number? Okay. If that's a two-digit number, add them together. So for example, if it was like 32, be 3 plus 2 equals 5. So you want to come back to a single digit. A single digit. You got it? Minus 5. Subtract 5 from that number. Got your number? Okay, now I want you to convert that number into a letter. So A would be 1, B would be 2. You with me? Got your letter? Okay, now thinking of your letter, think of a country that starts with that letter. Got it? Okay. Think of the last letter in your country's name. I know this goes on for 45. This is the entire thing right now. <laughs> but it would be. That'd be kind of funny if it was, right? No, so last letter in your country's name. Got it? Think of an animal that starts with that letter. Okay. Last one, last letter in your animal's name. Think of a fruit, and I'm not being good. Think of a fruit that starts with that letter. Got it? Okay, so how many folks are thinking about kangaroos in Denmark eating oranges? <laughs> Raise your hand high. Yeah, huh? So, so. <laughs> I have to say, this is always, I love this part, right? Um, so it turns out if you're working for racial equity, you get special powers. So it's a good reason to work for racial equity. No, it doesn't. So what just happened there? Anybody know? How'd that work? Ah, so the math. Yes, turns out the math was a distraction, like so many things in life, right? So you should have ended up Everybody in the room should have ended up with the number four, right? If you didn't, you, like me, you got your math wrong. <laughs> so if you ended up with the letter number four, it means you started with the letter D. So let me ask you this question. How many countries start with the letter D? No, yeah. Give me one. Dominican Republic. Djibouti, that's my favorite right there in North and Central Africa. So it turns out there's four. There's Dominican Republic, Dominica, Djibouti, and Denmark. So if we all right now were sitting in the Caribbean, which would be nice, and I said, think of a country that starts with the letter D, do you think we'd all say Denmark? Probably not. We were sitting in Central Northern Africa, and I said, hey, what country starts with the letter D? Do you think we'd say Denmark? Probably not. But it turns out that in this example, so we know bias is at play, but it turns out in this example that 70 to 90% of people in the United States will say Denmark, kangaroos, oranges. So hold, hold this with me, though. So even if we give ourselves the Denmark bias, how many animals start with the letter K? Koala, right, kingfish, well over a dozen. So give ourselves that. How many fruits start with the letter O? That's a hard, I had to Google this one. Like, <laughs> turns out olives are fruit. Turns out that there's at least a half a dozen. So what it turns out is 70, 90% of us actually say Denmark kangaroos oranges to a set of questions in which there's over a million possibilities. Over a million answers 
to this set of questions. And yet 70 to 90% of us say Denmark kangaroos, oranges. Because it turns out that even when we think we're starting with our own idea, that there is a whole set of culture, history, institutional policy and practice and structure that drives us repeatedly to the same outcome again and again. So when we all think about that whole set of racial inequity, when we think about how is it possible that thousands of people can be involved in a 50-year-long process watching people slowly die, how, can, how is it that we're all complicit in the outcomes that we see in race today? Denmark kangaroo's oranges. So, let me stop for a second and share a little bit about, just for a moment, about the Center for Social Inclusion. Um, well, I should just say this about me. Uh, I, um, I mentioned Charleston. Uh, Charleston was really powerful for me this year. Um, uh, I actually, my earliest work in the Northwest was part of an organization called the Coalition for Human Dignity, and we tracked neo-Nazis and skinheads. And it turns out in the late 80s and early 90s, there was a boom in neo-Nazi activity in the Northwest. Uh, all of it culminated ultimately in the death of a couple of folks, including uh, an East African immigrant, Mulagata Sarah, And that led to the largest civil rights lawsuit um, in the nation's history. And actually shut down uh, one of the largest Aryan nations, organizations in the country at the time. Um, and tension then started to fade from it. Uh, and I share that to say sort of that's what brought me into this work, but to recognize that as profound, again, as Charleston was, as profound as sort of the rise, and I hope you all know this, like the neo-Nazi party in the United States is at an all-time high, right? Uh, since Obama's come into office, the explosion in hate speech, hate groups, has been escalating year by year. Um, but all of that sets within a larger context, a larger conversation about what does race mean in the United States. Um, and so that's part of the work that we do for the Center for, so at Center for Social Inclusion is what does this story, this narrative, these outcomes mean for us as a nation? And what's the possibility of different outcomes? And so um, we actually really look at just three things, ideas, leadership, and communications. And the ideas are sort of what are the policy options that we have that could get us to different outcomes? And I know that's part of the conversation that you all have on a regular basis. Communications is, is what we're doing now in its simplest form. Like, what does it mean for us to have an honest conversation about race in the United States? Um, we test that, though. So one of the things we're interested in is how does that play um, when we bring race into conversations around policy? And then the last piece is around leadership development. How do we actually create leaders who are capable of having this, this conversation in a way that's courageous and gets us to different outcomes? Um, I will say this about race because it's just such a profound piece um, as we have this conversation. It turns out that um, because we're going to spend a minute um, talking about, we're not talking about individuals. When we talk about race, we think, frequently think of bad people, especially when we talk about racism. 
um, but we're not just talking about individuals. But we think in this conversation that it's really important to be able to, um, uh, really important to be able to define our terms. And race is a tricky one. So, uh, you know, both Summer in, in talking about her story made me think about this and Alice uh, and I had a great conversation at the table just about how uncomfortable we are with the conversation around race. Um, it turns out that the construction, the construct of race is so profound, actually I've done testing on this, put somebody in a chair, hook, hook them up to an EKG, test their bodily sort of response, and then just get them to say the word race. Just that, race. Heart rate goes up, perspiration increases. Literally causes a physical reaction for most folks in the United States. And at the same time, if you ask those same people, what is race? Most of them will stare at you blankly, right? We've got this construct that causes us universal stress, and yet most of us don't share even a common definition of what it is. So holding that, race is a construct. It's not biological. It's a modern idea, been constructed in the last 400 years here in the United States. I share this because I know everybody in this room is like, of course, I knew that. Truth is, one in three Americans believes race is genetic. One in three. If you believe there is a genetic difference based on race, then it's very easily easy to to defend why there is such a huge difference in outcomes based on race in the United States. If there is not one, then in fact, it begs a different set of questions. Policy drives the social construction of race. This piece is really important. We are here today with this set of outcomes by a specific set of policy practice and culture that has driven us to these set of outcomes. Uh, used this example before, you can find it, thinking about purpose-built communities, you can find it in any city in the United States. You will find, major city, you will find a highway that cuts the city in half. One side of that highway is guaranteed to be much darker than the other, much poorer than the other, right? And that was done by federal policy and practice. Ghettos didn't just happen, they were created by policy and practice. Last one, really important in this, we didn't choose the system. These are just three basic facts about race we think are critical to hold. Nobody in this room chose this. We didn't get a vote for it. But we most certainly collectively, collectively have a responsibility for a different set of outcomes. So I um, want to take a second and talk about racial equity. and. I keep using that word, and again, so important to think about defining our terms. And so, wanted to take a second and talk about the difference between equity and equality. So, uh, everybody here has been to a sporting event or to a show, um, some kind of major uh, event to, to attend, and like halftime comes or intermission comes, we all file out. And where did we go? Bathroom, right? So what's the difference in that experience for men versus women? Oh. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> OK, so for, for the women in the room, how much longer is the wait? How much longer is the line? Three times? Three times? Five. Five times, right? It's significant. 
right? How many restrooms in those facilities for men versus women? Equal. They are the same. Half of us are men, half of us are women, half the restrooms are for men, half the restrooms are for women. Only problem is it turns out that experientially, very different outcomes, <laughs> right? It turns out how women use restrooms is different. It turns out who designed restrooms is different. Um, so when we think about equity, equity is really just trying to apply a little bit of common sense and justice to a situation. And so across the country, you've got actually you now have folks who, uh, architects who are like, well, why don't we just build like two women's restrooms for every one men's restroom? Or even better yet, why don't we do family style restrooms that are open to everybody? So really just a little bit of common sense, a little bit of justice, different outcome. But the reason I like that example um, for the men in the room, what are we doing while women are waiting? What's that? Waiting, <laughs> right? We are actually waiting on our daughters. We're waiting on our partners. We're waiting on our mothers. We're waiting on our sisters. We are waiting. We may be having a beer and joking about it while we're waiting, but we're actually waiting because it turns out that when a system is out of balance, no one's benefiting from it. Just some of us are paying a higher cost for it, right? You with me? So when we talk about equity and racial equity, what's really important is a couple of things. One, when we talk about racial equity, we're just saying race is no longer a determinant of life outcomes. Um, that in addressing racial inequity, we improve outcomes for everyone, including white people. One of the great challenges in the United States is when we say race, white people think we're not talking about them. White is a race. In many ways, in fact, white is the only race how we got to this conversation in the first place. Second piece, racial equity is both our lens and our outcome. Really important that when we talk about equity, it's both we want a different outcome, but we also want a different process, a different way of actually thinking about how we get to collective outcomes that benefit us all. So I'm gonna take just a second um, to talk to you about a couple more terms. How many folks here are familiar with the term implicit bias? few folks. I uh, think this is important again in terms of our understanding of how race plays, especially at the individual level. So explicit bias, we all know that, right? That's expressed directly. Like an example of an explicit bias that's given here is I like white people more than I like Latinos. Conscious, just stated. It's how most of us think of bias. Implicit bias is expressed indirectly and it ha happens actually at the subconscious level. And it's when somebody comes into a room and sits further away from a group of Latinos. But if you ask them if they did that, they would say no. And they'd be sincere. So I want to give you a couple of examples. Let me pop back. Let me share a couple of examples. It's really important because it's a hard thing for us to hold because we have such deep commitment to the idea of individual identity, even though, as we saw with Denmark kangaroos and oranges, that's not actually how we really think. So it turns out that our subconscious mind is very much a dominant space for us, how it plays in our understanding of the world's around bias. So I will give you this example. Um, 
So it turns out that up until the 1980s, we couldn't find any talented female musicians for orchestras. They just weren't out there. You know, we were looking, but we just couldn't find them. <laughs> and so someone came up with a really simple idea, which was, what would happen if we put a screen up between the tester and the person playing the instrument? And then overnight, we suddenly found all these talented women, right? So, uh, literally overnight, 25 to 46% of hires were suddenly women. This experiment was so profound that what they found is, is that if the tester could hear the footsteps of the person who was about to play coming into the room, that it made as much as a 10% difference in who, who they actually hired. This one is actually an example around race. Um, so the picture on the left says a young man walks through chest deep flood water after looting a grocery store in New Orleans. And the picture on the right says two residents wade through chest deep water after finding bread and soda from a locally grocery store. <laughs> if we asked these writers if they had racial bias, what would they say? No. no. Not me. Some of my best friends are, right? <laughs> We know this to be true. And the truth is, they wouldn't be being, again, this is the tricky part. It's what makes it complicated. They wouldn't be insincere. So what's bias? Well, let me, before even saying that, let me just say this about bias. Just again, because it's a hard one to hold. Every second, we are taking in 11 million bits of information. Every second. And every second, we're conscious of 40 of them. 98% um, of our emotional cognition is in our subconscious. We are only conscious of 2% of it. So if you say, like, you know, I'm feeling X, chances are you're probably wrong. It's profound. So it's really important for us to hold that as we have these conversations, that much of how we are thinking about issues of race are playing for us as a set of tapes, if you will, in the back of our mind. So as we think about bias, one of the things that's come out of the last decade of research around the human mind, and we've learned so much in the last 10 years about how the human brain works, but one of the things that's most profound is that it turns out that suppressing bias actually makes it worse. So it turns out that like if you, you, know, you say love sees no color, it actually makes it more likely for you to see color. And it turns out actually the best way to deal with our bias is to embrace it, is to hold it, is to interrogate it, is to investigate it, is to be clear when we walk into a room and we find ourselves not sitting, to, sitting next to whatever group, to ask ourselves why. So just quickly, it turns out that that idea of bias is also playing for us institutionally, not just individually, right? So this is an example from, top, from the top. It says institutional explicit or conscious bias, then institutional implicit or unconscious bias, individual explicit and individual implicit. These are all examples from policing. And have done a lot of work with police departments around the country. Um, these were actually developed by police officers. Um, so the institutional explicit example is a police department refusing to hire people of color. 
up until 1970s, that was just the truth. That's how it worked. That was policy and practice. It is the context that everything else sits in. It's now illegal. The institutional implicit or unconscious example is police departments focusing on street level drug arrests. And this one always throws people. Why would that be a form of unconscious bias? Anybody? Anybody? Please. Street arrests are mostly people of color. That's exactly right. So it turns out folks of color are more likely to use and sell drugs on the street. But it also turns out that people of color and white people sell and use drugs at the same rate, right? Universally. So not that anybody in here would know. <laughs> but where do white people buy and sell drugs? At home. Turns out white folks are much more likely to buy and sell drugs behind closed doors. So if you focus on street level drug arrests, you're gonna arrest people for selling and using drugs. You're just gonna arrest a whole bunch of black and brown folks who sell and use drugs. Don't get me wrong, there's a lot of problems with street level drug sales. I'm not trying to make this simple. It's just to acknowledge the fact that that has a pretty profound bias and if you walked into our prison system anywhere in the United States, you would see what that looks like, right? So Nick's example is individual explicit. Police officer calling someone an ethnic slur while arresting them. This is what we think of when we think of racism in the United States, right? Problem is, is that it's a pretty narrow slice of the pie about how race is actually playing for us nationally. And the final one is, uh, individual implicit police officer calling for backup more often when stopping a person of color. And if we asked that officer, do you do that? The officer would say, no. no. And again, they'd be sincere. And in fact, we have. And they don't believe it until they see the data. Right? So just to acknowledge the fact that as we think about how we want to create change, that one of the things that we think is so important to name is that we hold that this, a police officer calling someone an ethnic slur while arresting them, is everything that we need to know about race. And in fact, there is so much more occurring, and even more importantly, that we deeply believe that it, the leverage for change is not at this point, it's up here, right? Again. The reason we all said Denmark kangaroos oranges is because in your school, by the time you graduated from high school, you probably heard the word Denmark 200 times and in 200 different contexts. Institutions drive understanding. The structures around us drive the way we perceive the world. I'm gonna give you a couple examples because I think it's really important. First one um, I'm just gonna share is that I'm a smoker. I was waiting for the booze. Um, uh, I don't say that with any pride. It's a uh, it's horrible addiction. I have not been able to shake it. Uh, but we've made a lot of change around smoking in the United States in the last few decades. And um, the piece that I would share is uh, change can happen. It can happen quickly if we're clear about our approach. And smoking is a great example. So. To hold how great of an example that is, is that if I'd have said I'm a smoker 15 years ago, 
rather than getting concerned and dirty looks from you all, a third of you would have said, join you to break, that's it. And if I had said I'm a smoker 30 years ago, I'd be smoking right now, <laughs> right? And I'd be happy, I'm just being honest, I'd be happy about it, but <laughs> I would be smoking in this space. My first doctor's visit when I was five years old, the doctor and my mom had a cigarette while talking about my health, right? We've seen change happen and change happen really quick when we're clear about it and when we take a particular approach. So I want to talk about that approach. Anybody here remember the first big anti-smoking campaign in the United States? It's 1980s. Anybody remember the woman smoking out of the tray? Oh, right? Yeah. Uh, it was powerful, uh, but it really didn't change much. Didn't actually change the number of smokers in the United States very drastically at all. Um, who's the audience for those commercials for that campaign? Smokers. And it turns out that as a smoker, I am much more aware, if you've never smoked, trust me, I have a better understanding of how damaging smoking is than you do. I feel it every day. So it turns out I, I'm not smoking because I think it's good or that it's not bad for me. I'm smoking because it's an addiction. So second great campaign comes around in the early 1990s, and this time it focuses on a brand new idea, and it's called Truth. Truth. It was the program. But what was the element that it focused on? Secondhand smoke. Remember that? It's actually the first time that we had actually even framed it that way. Who's the audience? Non-smokers. Non Turns out that Focusing on non-smokers created an opportunity to think about things in a very different way. Could actually have a national education campaign focused on institutions like children. Turns out that was really effective because today, if like I'm smoking outside and like a third grader walks by, they mock me, right? It's, there's no, right? But it allowed us to drive down into a deeper level into thinking about institutions and education. It also turned out that focusing on non-smokers, because that was the majority, that it actually allowed us to change a whole bunch of policy and practice. To the point today, that if I want to have a cigarette almost anywhere in the country, I have to be 25 feet from the closest door, right? And do you believe that there's a difference whether I was 15 feet or 25 feet from the door for your health? Huh. I can tell you, there's not. It turns out that I'm 25 feet from the closest door because I'm supposed to understand my behavior is completely unacceptable. It is not welcome. And guess what happened to smoking in the last two decades? Declined drastically. So if we think about how we get to change, if we focus on policy, practice, culture, if we were to drive home this idea that a police officer calling someone an ethnic slur while arresting them, that if you were that cop, you have to stand 25 feet from the closest door, I guarantee you we'd see a change in behavior. So really thinking about what those opportunities are in policy and practice can generate very different outcomes. Very quickly, a few more terms, promise, go through them quick. Individual racism, again, this is typically how we think about individual racism, prejudgment, bias, or discrimination um, by an individual, right? Institutional racism. I can guarantee you, go back into your organization, anywhere, and you ask folks, do you care about racial equity? 
is that a value hold? 90%, there's a few folks out there not with us, but 90% of people will raise their hand. And if you ask folks in your organization, are we effective at, at addressing this? You'd be lucky if you get 10%. So again, how is that possible, right? Structural racism just is acknowledging that we, again, we sit in a context, a history, culture of race, and that all of our institutions are interacting with each other, driving outcomes that are wildly different based on race. Easiest way to hold these three ideas, we're all sitting in this room, all of us have bias. If we act on those biases, we are discriminating. If we were to think about this institution here in the Hill, it has a set of policy and practice that is either moving towards greater equity or away from it. It's only two directions. And if we were to pan back from the hill and take in the entire skyline of Fort Worth, we would understand that all of those institutions and organizations are interacting with each other, driving outcomes. How do we get to change? Three simple ideas. Normalize, operationalize, organize. We need to normalize the conversation around race. We've got to be able to talk about it the way we would anything else that is this serious, right? Like we just did about smoking. We've got to be able to operationalize in our organization's culture, policy, and practice changes. And we've got to organize other folks to actually help us make this change. This is just to acknowledge how race functions in our national narrative, and it is a central narrative to our understanding of what it means for us to be Americans. Um, implicit bias, we talked about what that is. In the national narrative, what happens is we're all taught not to talk about race, so in fact what we use is a whole bunch of stuff around symbolic race and symbolic racism, which then triggers our implicit bias, which is how we get to such complicated, messy conversations and part of the reason why people actually break out in sweat when you ask them to say the word race. Great example of this, just very quickly, is our entire conversation this summer around the Confederate flag, right? Confederate flag is a, a single uh, idea, image, or word that triggers for everybody in this room a whole set of very complex narratives around race and what it means for us to be American. And it happens in a whole bunch of ways. When we say gentrification for everybody in this room, the reality is we are saying race, right? When we say uh, welfare, we are saying race. Only piece we want to name on this is that it's really important that we talk about what those things are in order to get the different outcomes. We do a lot of work with, with local government. And one of the things that we think is really important is that our national narratives around who we are as identity really do two of the sort of national meta-narratives is this idea of personal responsibility and the whole conversation around limited government. And both of those ideas are deeply steeped in our ideas of race. They are, in fact, part of the reason why they're part of our national narrative. And we think the only way that we get to different outcomes that actually create for us uh, effective government is actually by naming race. We see these two things as inseparable, that advancing racial equity is the only way we actually get to effective government and the idea of an effective democracy, and that the only way we get to effective democracy is by advancing racial equity. They are at the core of how our nation was constructed, and there's so much more we can say about that, but we're not. Here's a couple of examples of wanting to share what different outcomes could look like. 
So worked in the city of Seattle for six years before working nationally. Managed the city's race and social justice initiative. The initiative itself actually really focused on, um, well, everything we've been talking about. And every two years, we surveyed uh, government employees to ask them about their ideas about race and how they were holding this idea of, of the institution taking on a different role. We had 5,000, 10,000 city employees, 5,000 volunteered every two years to take a 50-question survey. Got some really amazing information from it. One is 86% of uh, the, the city employees said that examining impact of, of race at work was critical. Second one, um, this took a little bit of time, but 66% said they, they are actively promoting race and social justice changes in the workplace. So we're 3,500 employees saying, I want to make this a part of how I do my business on a, on a regular basis. Finally, about 60% felt like they were making progress in the city or within their department. We did a similar survey for community. 90% of folks said racial equity should be a core responsibility of government. 60% said that thought the city was making progress on this set of issues. And then we asked questions um, like, how is our schools doing? Only 50% of folks thought. The one I want to name here just really quickly because I think it's a good example is um, we also asked the question, are you comfortable in talking about race? 90% of people said yes. And then we followed up with another question, which is, is your neighbor talking about race? And what percentage of people said no? 90% of people. I'm good, neighbor not so good, right? That is the context, again, that we sit in in, in this national conversation. How do we actually move beyond a conversation that we all want to have, but we're all afraid to have? Right? So creating structural change, one thing, in the city of Seattle, we created a, a racial equity tool that we used in all budget decisions and now in the majority of policy decisions in the city. Every year, there's over 2,000 uh, uh, budget decisions that are made, um, and every one of them has to answer the question, what are the racial equity implications of this work, um, and what are any unintended consequences? We have changed literally hundreds of policies. Um, everything from uh, restrictions on criminal background checks uh, to uh, folks with being sort of banned the box. Um, I wish we had more time to talk, but maybe we can get to some of this in uh, questions. We actually made breastfeeding a protected class, uh, a protected civil rights class, um, recognizing that there's profound racial inequities based on people's access to breastfeeding, based on race, just as simple. Um, we tripled contracting goods and services for women and minority-owned businesses after having to deal with the elimination of affirmative action in the state. And I just want to give this last example. So many stories could tell, but um, it's an important one. If anyone had said to me that the most profound example of racial equity that I would come across in my adult life, especially working in a place like government, would be streetlights, I would have been profoundly confused. So a few years back, we had five young people die within the span of uh, maybe three months. I think the oldest was 15 years old as a result of gun violence. And the mayor at the time was deeply concerned. He said, I want to know what's going on in the neighborhood. Did a classic mayor move, got in a van, put a bunch of city staff in the van with him, went out on a nighttime drive into southeast Seattle, which is lowest income community in, in Seattle. It's uh, half the folks are poor, 
about 80% people of color, about 40% immigrant refugees, driving down the major thoroughfare, um, and he notices that a street lights out, and he says, what's up with that? And the person from City Lights like, I'm, I'm on it, I'm gonna find out. And he does, to his credit. And they actually use racial equity tool. They send out a, a group of folks who change polls, and they come back, and what they find out is, is that there's 80 streetlights up, right, eight zero. And I can tell you right now, in the city of Seattle, you won't find any area with 80 streetlights up. And so the question was, why? Turns out Seattle used a system for many years to many places did, which is simply this, that um, streetlights got replaced you were supposed to call when your bulb burned out. So your bulb burns out in front of your business, your house, that little number on the pole, you're supposed to call the city and say, pole number 5225 is out, and then the city comes out and chases the bulb. Why wouldn't that work in a community that's 80% people of color, more than half of whom are poor, and 40% immigrant and refugees? Say that? Vacant lots. Vacant lots? Could be vacant lots. Vacant lots, absolutely. Because we don't call government, it's right. Trust, <laughs> trust, why else? Language barriers, you, you all got it. I mean, in 30 seconds, we came up with a bunch of reasons why that is an odd system to imagine that it would work for this community. And in fact, that's all folks did. Sat down, they asked these questions and said, yeah, how would that work for this community? Made a really simple change. Turns out, life bulbs burn out. They have a life expectancy. You know, who to guess? And so, put a light bulb in, two or three years later, you come back and replace it, whether it's burnt out yet or not, and voila, you've got lights. Turns out that not only did that make sure that folks had lights, it's actually cheaper than running around all across the city trying to figure out which pole was burnt out. Right? So saving money. Also turns out, that streetlights are the number one thing we tell communities that they can do for environmental safety. So it wasn't just a light issue, it was a public safety issue in the most high crime neighborhood in the city. So the mayor gets this and he's like, this is amazing, right? This is fantastic. What other systems do we have that are complaint based? And folks are like, everything. <laughs> Right? For government. So we went through system by system, and it turns out it didn't matter if we were talking garbage pickup, water shutoffs, it didn't matter. There's a disparity. And almost all of them were driven in some way or another by complaint-based systems. Right? It turns out that even 911 is a complaint-based system. Don't think about it that way, but it's how it works. The north end of, of Seattle, University of Washington, University District, having many f phone calls to the police department as the south end, our most high crime neighborhood. What were the calls from the University District about to the police? Loud party, noise, there's noise complaints. So we were getting as many calls from the University of Washington as we were our hardest crime neighborhood. We were putting, therefore, as many police officers in the University of Washington as we were in our highest crime neighborhoods, even though the calls in the University of Washington were noisy. So we changed. Like, turns out that actually what people are calling about shouldn't matter. All of this is to say that when we, well, let me just end with this simple, simple fact. 
Changes to streetlights led to all these profound changes across the system. Who called the city to thank the city for changing the streetlight system? White folks on the north end of the city. Called up lots of them. Thank you so much, I was tired of calling it. Right? Goes back to the bathroom story. It turns out that when a system's fundamentally not working, it's fundamentally not working. Just some folks have more resources, more access to figure out how to make it work for them. But it turns out it's not really a functioning system. So really, when we think about how we get to different outcomes, at the end of the day, all we're really saying is, we need to ask ourselves who's benefiting and who's burdened by the decisions we're making. Pretty simple, right? And we need to recognize that when we come up with systems that fundamentally work for those who are most vulnerable in our communities, we are coming up with systems that work better for all of us. And I just want to say thank you for giving me your time. That was Glenn Harris, president of Race Forward and publisher of Color Lines at the Purpose Built Community's annual conference in Fort Worth in 2015. His session challenges us to really dig deep and reflect on racism and how we address it in our work. Racism isn't just bigoted acts by individuals. It's built into how our country's systems operate and function. And we need to not shy away from the tough conversations, both with ourselves and with others, in order to operationalize racial equity in our decisions and actions. As you're getting ready in the morning or going to your next meeting, Think about these questions. How can you examine your own relationship with race without being defensive? How do you talk about bias and race in a way that welcomes rather than repels others? And how can your organization move towards building racial equity through your own work? Find helpful resources on racial equity and holistic community development at purposebuiltcommunities.org and connect with others around the country working towards racial equity by following purpose-built communities on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. We'd like to thank Glenn Harris for his work and for sharing it with us. In our next episode, we'll hear from Dr. David Williams, a distinguished professor of public health, African-American studies, and sociology at Harvard. He'll share how racism and inequality make us physically sicker. Was by improving the places where people live, learn, work, play, and worship, we are actually improving health in very fundamental ways. Listen to This Is Community wherever podcasts are available or on purposebuiltcommunities.org podcast, where you'll find more information on the Purpose Built model and engaging sessions from our annual conferences. Presentations and videos at each of these sessions are on the website as well. This podcast is created in partnership with HL Strategy. Our executive producers are Aton Davidson, Howard Lawley, and Sherry Crawley. Our producer and editor is Brady Hummel. Mixing and mastering is by Matt Honkinen, and our music is from Pitchwire. Fine Productions recorded the conference session featured in this episode. If you like this series, be sure to subscribe and share it. I'm Alexandra Wiggins for Purpose Built Communities, and this is Community. Community.